This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and my guest today is Dr. Eric Garolnik. Dr. Garolnik is Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's also an Instructor of Public Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's also spoken to numerous cohorts of the MPLI Executive Education Program on his experience in the Boston Marathon bombing response. Dr. Grolick has developed a deep expertise in the intersection of emergency medicine and disaster preparedness and response. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to speak with him about building a culture of preparedness, educating the public, and the limits of relying on the public in a response, because it's been quite fashionable these days to want to pull the public in. We want to see what works and what doesn't. And then finally, understanding the dynamics of active shooter and other mass casualty events. Eric, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thank you so much, Eric. Happy to join you. I want to start with your work as Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness at the Brigham. There you've led efforts to build a real culture of preparedness across the hospital. Could you tell us a bit about that journey, what you've learned along the way? Well, here in Boston, there's been a wonderful culture of preparedness that predates me by more than a decade. And what I've learned is there is a true effort around community engagement and resilience building. The efforts really began post 9-11, continued with efforts that NPLI really spearheaded much of the work around bringing together experts from across the world to discuss their experiences from Madrid, from London, around efforts like Tale of Our Cities. And subsequently, over the years, We have focused on efforts that were multidisciplinary, collaborative, to help build relationships and build an effort around response and preparedness. Now, within the hospital itself, I mean, again, when we first talked about this, I thought, oh, it's a hospital. They're prepared. It's actually more than just the medical response and and that role in it. But as you told me, it was about really getting people to think in terms of a, a larger view of preparedness. How, how are you, in meta-leadership terms, sort of leading up and then leading across to other colleagues to make them aware of the full role that, that the Brigham would need to play in, in, uh, in preparedness and response? Well, our mission, like most academic medical centers, we have several missions. One is to take care of patients. Clinical care is number one. Uh, number two is education, education of students, of residents, in a variety of different programs. And number three is research. Uh, Research in developing innovation, fostering innovation to improve care for patients, to improve educational initiatives, and finally, community engagement. And preparedness is one of those efforts that sort of hits all of those multiple missions or buttons. And when we think about meta-leadership, It's an opportunity to 
work through each of these various uh, missions or departments and divisions throughout a hospital, throughout an academic medical center, and build relationships to help people keep people focused and help them understand that preparedness is part of their role and responsibility uh, to take care of patients, to lead in education, to develop innovations. And so that, you know, the challenge at an academic medical center is that people are drawn in many different directions, uh, have varying priorities, but the focus has been, and this is the, one of the keys I learned from meta leadership is, is unity of mission, unity of, of vision, and that is to take care of patients, helping uh, empower individuals, divisions, departments, uh, clinicians, administrators, to help identify that their role is critical when we go through an event like the Boston Marathon bombing or preparing for an Ebola patient or any other infectious disease or a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear event, uh, that they are key players and that we have to work together uh, to navigate those issues. I think it's a really important point you make that about unity of mission. And I think it's really important for any organization, healthcare or otherwise. As you say, people are busy, they've got lots going on, they get pulled in different directions. But to know and understand and believe in their hearts as well as their heads that when everything's on the line, what's that one core mission? And in your case, it's taking care of patients. And in other organizations, maybe something different, but having everybody know that supersedes everything else. So that again, when you have to rise up and bond to something, uh, everyone can get focused and, and move forward together. Now, sadly, Brigham and Women's didn't just train for extraordinary events. You actually experienced one fatal shooting back in 2015. One of your cardiac surgeons unfortunately lost his life. Horrible incident. How did the preparedness work that you did and the, or the organization did affect the response? And how did that event inform your thinking going forward about how to make sure you're even better prepared? Well, we really focus on learning from others and constantly are trying to look at the literature, look at discussions, look at social media and understand where current and potential future threats are. And we identified active shooters in our hazard vulnerability analysis really in 2012 into 13, helped reprioritize that. And over the course of the next couple of years, that became a, a new reality and a new priority. And we focused on this effort by doing tabletop exercises, functional exercise with Boston police, with Boston EMS, with the multidisciplinary effort in one of the areas that we thought was more high risk in the hospital uh, for a potential event. And we learned from others on how they had built their plans. We looked at Texas. There was an organization in Texas that had done a wonderful active shooter video. And we reached out to them and we built our own video uh, based on what they had done. And we put that video online and many of our employees watched that video. And we think between the tabletop exercises, the functional exercise and the video training, that helped. Uh, that helped our uh, response uh, during the event. And 
it helped us understand where our gaps were uh, after the event for future planning. And subsequently, we've uh, focused efforts primarily on transitioning from coded language in the hospital communications to plain language. And what I mean by that is traditionally used a variety of different codes to communicate to staff. Code red is a fire. Code gray is a security event. Code white is a bomb threat, et cetera. And although we had switched to plain language for an active shooter, we had switched from code silver to life-threatening situation, our plain language wasn't plain enough. It still caused uh, not frank confusion, but not real clarity with all of our staff members and patients and families uh, when we had an active threat in the institution. Uh, so we've transitioned to plainer language and we've transi transitioned many of those codes uh, to plain language so that of the 17,000 employees at Brigham Health and the 25,000 visitors we have every day, if there's an event in the building, they should know immediately and they should know what actions they need to take. So our plain language initiative, which is across Brigham Health and now is a building across Partners Healthcare, is for us to communicate in a manner that provides individuals what's happening and what they need to do to be safe. That's a really good story. And I think that, again, for lots of organizations should be learning this uh, notion of plain language communication, because just as, as you just stated, Eric, that you've got 17,000 employees, but you get 25,000 visitors and patients and people in the, in the hospital who have not necessarily been trained and don't know your codes and that you can actually activate action much more quickly through with plain language. And I would also think, you know, in NPLI terms, if people go to the basement, knowing what to, how to get out of the basement, the more clearly they understand the threat, the more quickly they're going to go back to their rehearsed protocols and procedures, the staff will, and, and know what to do. I think it's really, really interesting. Have you been able to measure results or measure what kind of difference this has made so far? Not yet. We're we're working on how to assess it by performing a literature review and understanding what's been done in the past there's been some sort of convenient samples of individuals and employees at different organizations on plain language transition uh, so we're working on what we think is the right format for assessment and stay tuned okay we'll, we'll bring you back to talk about that one i think it'd be very interesting now independent of what you've done at brigham health um, you've undertaken quite a bit in your role there. You've undertaken quite a bit of research on active shooter events nationally and internationally. Uh, and we're going to have a list of the journal articles uh, on our website corresponding to this podcast. Could you give us a quick overview of what research you've undertaken and what you found so far? We did a lot of interviews and uh, a lot of perspective type pieces after the active shooter that we had here. One of the key points is the transition of plain language. Uh, and then the other key point, and this has been in parallel, has been around this concept of layperson empowerment. And what I mean by that is recognizing that when an event occurs at any facility, out in the public, et cetera, uh, there is a gap in time between the point of injury and public safety professional response. In fact, the average time in the United States from the call 
911 and the point of injury to EMS arriving is seven minutes. And someone can certainly bleed to death in that amount of time. So, you know, an effort really, as you well know, uh, was established uh, shortly after Sandy Hook and the Boston Marathon around the Hartford Consensus, which was actually gathering uh, surgeons and eventually grew to over 35 professional organizations endorsing the concept of uh, training public safety professionals, so law enforcement, fire, EMS, around uh, recognizing life-threatening bleeding and intervening, meaning applying pressure, packing a wound, and or applying a tourniquet if it's an extremity, then spread to layperson uh, empowerment. So the public, as we learned after the, uh, after the marathon bombing and review, there were close to 30 uh, improvised tourniquets that were applied by laypersons in the field. So the public wants to do this, they want to get engaged. Uh, and then after that, the Stop the Bleed campaign, which was uh, really pioneered uh, by one of your uh, alumni, Rick Hunt, uh, and his team uh, at the National Security Council, uh, they really pioneered this effort. So this was all happening in parallel to, to Mike's shooting in January 20th of 2015. Uh, so subsequently, we engage with our relationships. We provide medical direction at Gillette Stadium, the home of the New England Patriots. We engage with them to be one of the first stadiums that became really a stop the bleed stadium. Uh, so we conducted a, a trial with 562 laypersons, so non-medical trained personnel, comparing in-person training versus uh, just-in-time applications, so a kit that talks to you uh, versus a card that gives you instructions versus no training uh, and found uh, some nice conclusions on how to train and prepare at a public venue with not only training, but also uh, implementing uh, kits. So putting kits on the walls, uh, giving kits to each of these laypersons, and also doing a public safety announcement, which was the first in, in uh, the NFL uh, to sort of move forward this effort around layperson empowerment. That was between the plain language building implementation piece on empowering laypersons to recognize life-threatening bleeding and intervene. Those have been really two of the key points we've taken away from not only the active shooter, but really our experience from the Boston Marathon. Well, you were among the physicians who responded after the Boston Marathon bombings. And that was, I think, the incident, at least for me, when this notion of the general public applying tourniquets or, or trying to stop catastrophic bleeding uh, became popular, popularized, as you mentioned, 30 or so were, were applied. And so it shows there is the instinct there to do it. Uh, what did you learn as you tested the various methods of preparing people? Were, were people able to be effective with a tourniquet, just grab and go, or do they need more instruction? Well, so what we found was, essentially our study was a randomized control trial. And what we did is broke them up in four groups. Group number one, so a quarter of the uh, individuals, they would walk into a room and they were read a scenario uh, around a mass casualty incident. There's an individual uh, down on the ground next to you and there was a simulator there, a mannequin. And they had a box with a tourniquet in it and they were instructed to uh, help if they can provide help. Uh, so what we found was uh, in that arm, uh, roughly 16% of those individuals with no 
prior training were able to place a tourniquet effectively, which meant that they put the tourniquet on in less than seven minutes. Uh, they made it tight enough, there was adequate tension, and they put it in the right location, uh, which is two inches above the wound. That's group one. Group two, uh, we brought into the room and read them the same scenario. And they had a kit with a flashcard. And that flashcard is a little pictograph of how to apply a tourniquet. And approximately 20% of those individuals got it right. The third group walked into the room and they had a kit that had both the flashcard on it and it had a button. And once you press the button, it would talk to you. It was an audio file that would explain to you how to apply the tourniquet. And that group, 23% got it right. And the final group, in that first hour, that final group, they actually went for an hour of training. The American College of Surgeons has a course called uh, the Basic Hemorrhage Control Course. And that hour course consisted of about 25 minutes to 30 minutes of didactics, and then uh, 25 to 30 minutes of practical training. And then the second hour, they were brought into the room individually and they were tested. And that group, 88% of those individuals got it right. And then what we did is we did follow-up afterwards at three to nine months afterwards, we essentially set up shop uh, as these employees walked into the stadium, took them uh, aside and did retesting. So we put them through the same scenario and retested them. And so this is anywhere from three to nine months after training. And we found that 55% of those individuals, regardless of uh, age, education level, uh, ethnicity, were able to still perform that skill set. What a, what a dramatic difference that training makes to go from 16 to 23% from some from either no no guidance to passive guidance than the active training. You have a big big jump up. That's that's really interesting, and I think it does speak to the need to actually engage people and teach them what to do and not just assume that the instinct alone is going to be enough. I hope that public safety leaders across the country take heed of that. Uh, and if I can jump on my hobby horse for a moment, I really wish that more employers would offer this kind of training as part of their employee benefits and wellness package, just provide it to people. And boy, it should be tax deductible if you have to go pay to get the training through uh, Red Cross or somebody else. But that's just my little thing I've been flogging for a while. So I think we're at the beginning, Eric, you know, we're, you know, this is really where CPR was uh, 30 years ago, right? The initial calls were, you know, can, can lay persons do this, right? Can non-medical personnel do this? Um, and so with this study, we demonstrate that lay persons can do it. And actually one of my colleagues, a guy by the name of Craig Goolsby, uh, who's an emergency medicine physician uh, who works at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, uh, they've done uh, some studies at the same time, and they've found with their just-in-time applications, they have, for example, a phone-based uh, tutorial that with follow-up, uh, they were pretty successful uh, with uh, individuals on uh, applying the tourniquets using very similar measurements. So I think we're right at the beginning of innovation, and we think about scalability Yes, the standard right now is in-person training, but how many people in this country have, have been CPR trained, right? And if we think about that compared to Stop the Bleed, 
how do we scale this model? So I think there's going to be a lot of different ways to, to go at this. And I applaud you for pushing organizations, both private and public organizations, to get their employees trained because we're right at the beginning. And I think what we're going to see over time is developments of the equivalent of the automatic de external defibrillator uh, for bleeding control, meaning something that is relatively autonomous that you can pull off the wall with minimal training that people can get uh, and do successfully. Uh, it's, it's an exciting time for us uh, because we see that, you know, the real potential to decrease preventable deaths and preventable injury is uh, really at that, at that point from either, you know, the prevention piece prior to injury or right at the point of injury to getting more rapid medical care it's an exciting time. Well, that's good. And that's good to hear. I think you're right. I think that advances in technology will certainly push this along as they pushed everything else along. Uh, and we'll get smarter devices where, where you may need minimal human intervention to, to get it right. And no matter what, each one of these efforts has the potential to save lives, which is the most important thing. You also at Brigham Health were, were very instrumental in public education during the Ebola outbreak. Uh, I remember that you took, were very proactive because of working with the media to educate the, the, the public uh, on, so if we get a case, what's going to happen? What's it going to look like? How are we going to respond? In Meta Leadership Turn, we, we call that leading beyond, so leading outside of your organization and leading out to different stakeholders. Talk a bit about what, what you did there and uh, what the organization did and, and uh, what was the thinking behind showing the, the, the public getting in behind the scenes to, to see what's going to happen if we have to confront Ebola. Well, I remember sitting in an MPLI course and you discussed along with Rich Besser the strategy during H1N1 around communications. You reminded us that if you look at every press conference at the beginning of H1N1, the message was here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's how we're going to address that or bridge the gap. And that was really helpful for, for us because there were a lot of unknowns, obviously, during the Ebola outbreak in 2014 into 15. And you know, remember, it really ratcheted up a notch when Eric Duncan was the first patient at, in the United States that was identified in Dallas. And people were scared, people were really nervous, and no one trusted each other, let alone governmental organizations, the CDC, et cetera. So that was a time for us to really go with that method of saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's how we're gonna address the gap. And it was full transparency with, with our staff, our patients, our families, and the public. And we had to really ratchet up uh, our training. We had to identify uh, those gaps uh, because we had prepared for, for all hazards, but certainly not at the intensity that we did over the subsequent months. But by, again, using some of the concepts of meta leadership, you know, leading across and getting you know, the most qualified people to the table to have these conversations to build a training plan, to build checklists, to you know, build the capability to care for these types of patients and work not only within our system, but across the healthcare system 
uh, as we help sort of identify a, a triage algorithm for these patients. Uh, that was that was really critical. And all the while, as you say, communicating with the public, either via social media or via TV or via news articles uh, to stay on message. Here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's how we're gonna bridge the gaps. I think that helped over time address people's fears in a very transparent, direct, and meaningful way. I, yeah, I think that is, is so, so critical. Uh, I think one of the things we need to remember is that most members of the public do not have master's degrees in public health. They are not epidemiologists. Uh, they don't fully understand the science behind a particular public health outbreak, be it Ebola or H1N1 or Zika. They, they don't know. And they, you know what? If they aren't epidemiologists, they don't have to know most of the time. And so the education efforts are so critical because people will, if they don't have the facts, will fill in with what they hear from friends or what they hear from uh, un uninformed commentators. I know that even during the Ebola response, I was speaking with the someone who was fairly senior at a, a large public health organization that shall remain nameless at the moment. She had been in West Africa, but not near an infection. She was not a clinician, but she was there on a, in a support role. Uh, and when she came back, she found social distancing, uh, her, her kid not being invited to birthday parties of people in that organization who understood the science. But it was, oh, you've been close to it, I'm scared. And we, I don't think we can underestimate that, that fear factor. And it can even be our colleagues who are just in a different part of the organization. So even at a, uh, an academic medical center, if you don't, you know, if you work in maternity or you work in the administration someplace, just because you work in a healthcare organization doesn't mean you're you fully understand all of it and what to do. So I, I commend you for those education efforts. And it was, it was impressive to see that it was on the local news. It was out there in ways it was very accessible and it was, uh, didn't feel like you were wagging a finger, but it was, here's what you need to know. Here's what you're going to need to do. I think it was a really, a really commendable effort. Well, you know, again, it, it, it takes a team and we were really, we were laser focused. We were meeting, our instant command team was meeting on a daily basis. We had reviewed uh, a lot of the work that have came out of uh, events like H1H, H1N1 and SARS. Uh, there was a wonderful case study out of Hong Kong written by clinicians there. I was really focused on communication strategy and we built upon the framework uh, because they shared we were better and we were far from perfect but we continue to evolve uh, based on others' experience and exchange of ideas with us as we went through it and other organizations as we all went through it. Uh, and this, this, this is a threat. Uh, it won't necessarily be Ebola, but an epidemic is a real threat to all of us. And I want to touch on that point of sharing for a moment because you, you've mentioned it several times and I think it's, I think it's so important. And I don't know if it's... Uh, my limited experience, or if this is actually a new phenomenon, but it does seem like this act of sharing is going on much more often. I mean, there was the tale of our cities bringing experts in terrorism to various cities in the U.S. to share what they had learned. Uh, I know that after the Paris shootings and after the, uh, the bombing in Brussels, uh, you went over and talked to people there. There were delegations that came here after the Boston Marathon bombings. It seems like it's a real culture of wanting to learn from each other. Is that is that gotten more active in recent years or is that just my limited perception? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a balance between security and transparency. Obviously, we live in a world uh, that there are uh, concerns about providing particular information that may give your organization or team uh, more risk by being transparent. But I think there's a, there's a fair amount of information that we can be transparent on and need to be better at being transparent on with regard to response and preparedness, and particularly in the, uh, in the medical field. Uh, I think after each of these events, we've had a great deal of, of good transparency, uh, but there are limitations, obviously, around uh, HIPAA, uh, Health Information Privacy Act, share patient data, and also uh, concerns, uh, medical legal concerns. I think it's a really important question that we've got to navigate through if we really want to get to the heart of the response and key lessons learned from these events so we can get, get better. So that's, a, that's an effort uh, to work through. I think the next few years is establishing that framework so it can be more like an agency like the National Transportation Safety Board, which has the authority uh, to go into an organization uh, after an event and really understand uh, the mechanics of a response uh, so that they can improve uh, the response for the, for the next event or more importantly, prevent uh, any sort of mishap. And I think the next phase of disaster medicine as a whole is to get to that level of transparency. That's a really interesting analogy to the NTSB because I think you're, you're right. After there's an ABA transportation incident of any kind, um, they show up, they do their work, no one questions it, they've got legal authority, and their job is primarily to go in and find out what happened, what, what's the root cause, and how do we not have it happen again. Uh, it would be great to see that for other types of incidents, you know, to get, again, to get that kind of transparency and that learning in, the, in service of making us all better prepared. So I have one final question for you as we come to the end of our time together. You've created a really interesting portfolio of work, the various things you've been engaged in. What's coming next? What are you working on now? What are you thinking of for the next couple of years? Well, there's two consensus conferences that we're going to facilitate over the course of the next year in 2019. We have funding from Jillian Rennie, Stepping Strong Center for Trauma Innovation, which is a fund that was based at Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, that is focused on trauma care. And it was established by the parents of Lynn, who was injured during the Boston Marathon bombing. And they've been gracious enough to fund a series of various grants. And uh, one grant that they funded is uh, these two consensus conferences. One consensus conference, uh, we're teaming with the National Center of Disaster Medicine and Public Health, which is at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences on this consensus conference. It'll take place in February 2019. And really the goal is to define the research agenda for the next five to 10 years in layperson empowerment and bleeding control. We've done a variety of different work. There's a lot of 
pockets of various ideas and innovations in this space. And the idea with this consensus conference is to bring together the, the thought leaders, the, the researchers, the public health experts, the clinicians, and organizations to define that research agenda. So the outcome will be all the various questions that, that we think are important to answer over the next five to 10 years uh, to get us to a point <clears throat> where it can be like CPR as embedded in the public as CPR. The second consensus conference is around this concept of developing these GO teams, the concept of uh, transparent disaster after action reporting. Our initial focus is going to be um, really on urban terror events. Again, we'll use a similar framework, which is to gather expertise, individuals that have published in this arena, that have researched in the arena, that are public health and clinical experts, uh, in addition to various key organizations uh, in the medical space uh, to really define a template on assessment. Uh, and that template would essentially be the seed uh, for a database so that eventually the goal would be a rapid, rigorous, timely after action reporting process uh, housed in a database. So you could compare or one could compare the last 10 events and identify from the last 10 events, here are the five critical themes from you know seven or eight of these events. Uh, and here are the issues that we need to focus our efforts and innovation to improve care for patients uh, families and staff after these events. So that's what 2019 looks like. And uh, we're really excited uh, to team with Stepping Strong and uh, USIS on moving these efforts forward. That's great. It sounds like exciting times ahead. And we're going to be sure to have you back to talk about the results from those consensus conferences as well as your other work. I want to thank Dr. Eric Garolnik for taking time to be with us today. Uh, Dr. Garolnik, again, is Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and an Instructor of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Remember, listeners, when your Europe moment comes, be ready to lead. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.